I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Team Human. We took a couple of weeks off for the holidays and also to prepare for the upcoming weeks of touring and Team Human live shows. Yes, Team Human, the book, The Manifesto, is out, and I'm doing events across the country and in the UK to celebrate and to find the others. Uh, January 22nd, I'll be at McNally Jackson Bookshop in New York City. January 23rd is the Team Human Book Party at Civic Hall in New York. You're all invited. January 24th, I'll be in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose. January 29th, I'll be at the Counterculture Literary Hub of San Francisco, City Lights Bookstore. January 30th, I'll be with my friend David Peskovitz at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. February 4th, I'll be with Naomi Klein at WNYC's Green Space. February 7th, I'll be at MIT Media Lab in the afternoon and Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge that night. February 14th, I'm in London at the RSA. February 15th, at the British Library with George Monbiot. And the tour ends in Portland at Powell's Bookstore on February 21st. And with the Team Human Live at Bunk Bar on February 22nd. All this and more and links at teamhuman.fm. Just click on live events. We're having a great time so far this year. I've been writing a column at my new online home, Medium, where they're also hosting this show. Most of my monologues, including the one you're about to hear, are also adapted on Medium as columns. You can find them and my other writing at medium.com slash at Rushkov. Today's show is a Team Human Live, recorded at New York City's Civic Hall on December 13th. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps, coming to you alive from New York Civic Hall, where they are recontextualizing doing good as a human strength, not a weakness. We're living in a world where humans are seen as the problem and technology is the solution. Well, not here. 
Team human is a flag in the sand, an intervention by people on behalf of people, a denunciation of the fear, the labels, and the lies that are used to alienate us from one another, erode the fabric of our social reality, and pit us against one another in an ill-conceived and self-destructive competition. And for what? Total isolation masquerading as security. Well, that stops here. It's time to find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Our guests today, New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs, Penny Abiwardina, and the inventor of VRML, host of Next Billion Seconds podcast, technologist, philosopher, and mage, Mark Pesci. So medium.com asked a bunch of people like James Comey, Nancy Gibbs, and me what word we think mattered most this year. And my word of the year was nation. Nothing could have undermined the concept of nation more than its appropriation by our president. By claiming nationalism as his guiding ideology, Trump did far more than associate himself with white supremacy. The propagandist-in-chief forced us to grapple with the question of what we mean by nation to begin with. And as it turns out, the concept is a lot fuzzier than you might think. Although there weren't really any official nation states until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, what we think of as the nation was invented during three or four centuries prior by early European nobles looking to consolidate their power. These were the former lords of feudalism who depended on the labor of peasants for centuries but were now losing control. Their dwindling kingdoms were less relevant to people than the growing cities in which they worked and traded. A newly rich city merchant class was challenging the nobility from below. The monarchs tried a bunch of things to save their kingdoms. First, they outlawed all local monies. Only the king could issue currency, and he'd be paid for it with interest, and his head would be on the coin. Monarchs also began making deals with their favorite most loyal merchants called chartered monopolies, which granted exclusive control over an industry or a territory in return for a share of the profits. Those proto-corporations, in turn, colonized the new world, protected by royal gunships. But they needed to win their people over in less coercive ways, convince them that they were really part of the project. So these monarchs needed a myth to get these former peasants to stop identifying with their town or county of origin, but as part of a much larger, quite abstracted economic and colonial power defined less by geography than by control. And so the myth of the nation was born. People were encouraged by church, by school, by regulation, and by commerce to embrace their new identity as natives of this new entity, the nation. No matter that they had different clans, tribes, or cultures, now they had a unifying myth of origin and purpose. Creating such unifying mythologies is a time-honored tradition that goes all the way back to the Torah. Much to the chagrin of many true believers, the so-called Old Testament is a mythological common origin story that sought to unify the disparate tribes of Israel by recasting a bunch of nomadic tribes in the desert as the descendants of this one guy, Jacob. The myth of a common ancestry encouraged descendants of these competing tribes to think of themselves as one nation. Many of the Jewish groups I speak to are threatened by this fact. To them, exposing Bible stories as allegorical legends somehow undermines Israel, the modern nation state, and it shouldn't. 
Instead of depending on some ahistorical mythology from Bible stories to make America great again, the power of a nation state should come from its citizens' active choice to live within a unifying ethical framework. We may not be united by race or ethnicity, but we are still members of a participatory experiment that began when the colonies declared their independence from the British Empire and its British East India Company. The founders made a bet that a new nation could be formed not by decree, but by choice, not as an alliance between corporate pirates and colonial gunships, but as an alliance between people, not a set of boundaries, but a moving target, open source. The experiment fails, however, when we conceive of our nation as something forged in the past, some blood and soil claim to authentic origins or divine rights, rather than an approach to the future. The backwards-looking nation builds walls to protect its boundaries, defines its citizens with ever more precision, and protects the profits of its chartered corporations, even at the expense of the climate, economy, and well-being of its people. Nationalism is an ideology that depends on forgetting that the nation is a social construction, subordinating people and places to the imaginary framework. As nation states disconnect from the needs of people, it has fallen to the real human colonies, the cities, to serve as true representatives of the people's will. In America, cities such as New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and Seattle are all directly addressing environmental and immigration issues that have become too difficult for national leaders to address without contradicting mythologies of national origin or manifest destiny. A nation state's dependent on such myths makes it the natural enemy of the facts on the ground. Truth becomes treason. Cosmopolitans and city dwellers are seen as decadent elites, attempting to disconnect good people from their native lands and righteous heritage, corrupting them with new thinking about ethnicity, race, gender. But jingoism is no substitute for solidarity. While jingoism is based on false notions of race and destiny, solidarity finds its power in the affiliation of real people living and working together toward common goals. The city is the largest natural amalgamation of people we've got. And however large a city gets, it remains a local phenomenon defined by people in a place, not by politicians from afar. It was the city-state that was repressed by the rise of nationalism and the city-state that will rise again as nations fail to address the challenges of our time. If there's a silver lining to today's virulent nationalism, it's that it has exposed the false premise on which our nation-states were built and the corporate agenda that has fueled them ever since. 2018 will be remembered as the year the world's most powerful country finally broke the very notion of nation itself. You're listening to a special Team Human Live recorded at Civic Hall on December 13th. Our guest is New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs, Penny Abewardina. Team Human is entirely listener-supported, and you can become a patron of the show at teamhuman.fm by clicking on support. You can also go there for my schedule of upcoming appearances and Team Human book talks. You're on Team Human. Our first guest tonight works at the intersection of city governance and global sustainability. As head of the Mayor's Office for International Affairs, she leads the city's global platform, for promoting its goals for a more just and accessible society, showcasing the diversity of New Yorkers and sharing policies and best practices with the world. It's my honor to welcome Commissioner Penny Abiwardina. Hi. 
I'll be honest, since I've been in this role, I've never um, joined a conversation after quite um, a powerful opening remark. <laughs> Don't get me into trouble here. <laughs> no, it was meant. It, it, these are words of praise. Well, we we met just a just a, f a few weeks ago at, we at did. a breakfast where I, I that's why I met you and I'm like, what do you do? Oh, I'm from the, you know the Office of International Affairs. We work with diplomats and all. And I'm thinking, oh, like you get them like you know the, those special license plates or something, or you help if uh, if you know the teen son of some diplomat uses the diplomatic pouch to bring like cocaine into JFK and they call you up to. <laughs> I was like, what is that? And it was like, no, you, you actually help New York behave as an international player, that New York does global diplomacy. That's, a yes. new, that's new for a lot of us. It is new. And I'll be honest, this agency that I run has been around for over 50 years. And historically, under different administrations, it's really been about <laughs> the very important operational dynamic that New York City has. Uh, we're host to the largest diplomatic corps. So yes, we have a very robust parking program for diplomats. <laughs> we, and it's important. And we deal with diplomatic incidents and security issues. But um, Mayor de Blasio, when he came in in 20. 2014, um, you know, we're here to talk about uh, humans and I think humanity and something that really um, was exciting for me is that I've never worked in city government. I've never worked in government before. And part of the reason our agency does the work it does and why is because of who I am. So I uh, was born in Sri Lanka. My parents uh, came to the U.S. in the early 80s, and we overstayed a visa. And so we were undocumented for much of my childhood. So I'm a 1980s version of a dreamer. And the reason we got a path to citizenship was because of Ronald Reagan's um, amnesty back in 1986. And there is something to be said about having that experience of being undocumented, being an immigrant, being a woman of color, essentially becoming New York City's ambassador to the global community. 98% of of uh, meetings I walk into, I'm likely uh, one of the younger people in the room, I am uh, one of the few women, and I am definitely one of the few women of color. And that definitely influences the way that we do the work that we do, and I will say, Mayor de Blasio had, um, I think, both the privilege and the challenge of not having a deep bench when he won um, and became the most powerful municipal leader in the world. And if you look at a lot of our agency heads and thus the work that we do within this administration, a lot of us were activists and practitioners of the work um, that we now represent for city government. And our connections to the communities and the needs are that much um, more powerful and, and real because we had them in our previous roles and then so so you help kind of pivot yeah the so yeah and how does that happen so it's, who the hell knew you could be an entrepreneur in government? Um, and a lot of that has to do with leadership. So the mayor, he, you know, at the end of the day, we're not core to the city functioning. Um, we host the largest diplomatic corps. Uh, the Vienna Convention requires the operational dynamic that I discussed earlier. But he, um, you know, coming in and thinking about how are we going to take, we're paid by the taxpayers, how do we bring value to New Yorkers? We also host this extraordinary institution, the United Nations, 193 permanent missions, but we also have 115 consulates. These are arms um, and bridges to our immigrant communities, and how are we using those? So I spent the first couple of months um, trying to understand what this agency did before, because I hadn't heard of it either. And then I started reaching out to um, both 
the partners that we have throughout city agencies. So just how did we work with you before? And we really hadn't worked with other city agencies. And then I talked to UN and other uh, consuls general and ambassadors to understand the need. And every community was so hungry to connect with New Yorkers. You know, at the end of the day, they are in Turtle Bay, just sort of isolated in their sort of diplomatic space. And, and the city wasn't doing its job of trying to figure out how do we take advantage of having this rich international global community here and bring value to our everyday New Yorkers. So I was actually able to restart. I restructured the agency and was able to have a startup for two years to figure out how can we bring this value. And we do it in a couple of different ways. And, you know, we had the two years under the Obama administration, a great relationship with the State Department and the U.S. mission to the U.N. in the sense that we were both values driven around how we approached climate change, how we approached immigration. And what has been very interesting has been with the Trump administration. And as you have a federal government not only abdicating its role on global issues, but actively terrorizing our communities, those relationships that we had built with the consular, the consular corps, more important than ever, because now we can work with them and let them know where we are and how we protect our citizens after DACA and TPS, uh, temporary protected status were repealed. What is the dynamic between the NYPD and ICE? These are, these are real issues that are terrorizing our communities. And now we had this extraordinary bridge and relationship to do that. But that human connection, and I was just, I loved, I love um, the, the thought of your premise behind this, because part of the reason we do the work we do and we do it so well is because of the humanity behind how we drive the issues, but also how we want to show up for our our community and New Yorkers. I mean, there's, there's I guess, the question of, of the nature of global problems and the scale of the solutions that they call for, things like, you know, climate change, refugees. And, and what do you see... What's the, the sort of the unit of social organization that's, that's most commensurate with the scale of global crises? Like climate change? The community. Yeah. You know, because yeah. at service to New York, New Yorkers are concerned that their city is going to get flooded. Yes. And climate change is our problem as a city. And it happened. I mean, we, we all, I think, if uh, if you guys had been here a couple of years ago, part of the reason we have one NYC in our development agenda for New York City is because of what happened during Superstorm Sandy. Um, we were devastated by climate change in that, in that way. So there have been a couple of ways that we show up. New York City, um, from a population perspective, is as large, if not larger, than 141 countries. So we, as a progressive activist administration, want to prove that if we can get shit done here, whether it comes to community policing, whether it comes to climate change, IDNYC, we know that these are policies that can be replicable in other cities and states around the world. And so how do we create a platform to do that? Um, there have been a number of opportunities uh, during this Trump era. Um, one, we knew he was going to put up, pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. We signed uh, the very next day an executive order committing New York City directly to the Paris Climate Accords. And what we did was actually um, surpass the targets that they have in the in the Paris Climate Accords. And that is um, reducing emissions by 2050 by 80%. So we are, we are pushing the, and, and I mentioned that we're as large as 141 countries, if not larger, because that's real. We're, we're 8.6 residents, 8.6 8 million residents. If we can get it done here, we can, we can help other cities come along with us. But we can also show right now that there are beacons of sane policy around this country. And we are here to show up for that. So 
Something that's been very important in the, the UN international um, order right now has been the Global Compact on Migration. Unfortunately, this process started in, under um, the Trump administration to, to take it forward, and they, of course, completely disengaged from it. What's been fascinating is that the UN, you know, we, we approached them and said, listen, if the US is not going to be privy to this, uh, I want you to know that this is what New York City is doing, and we should at least be heard. And we were able to lead a delegation of 50 international cities and um, there were many domestic cities that participated in this, and we were able to be part of the formal negotiations over the summer. There was a mayoral um, the delegation that went to uh, to Marrakesh this past weekend for the Global Compact on Migration. So while these while these issues are so significant, that connection to this is happening in our own com- community. This is how it's impacting us and the solutions that come from this reality. Right at the end of the day, the majority of populations are living in urban centers. We are at the source of the problem and we are the source of the innovation and the solutions for it. And so that is the kind of platform that we have tried to build through um, through my specific agency. Are there organizations, I mean, the, there's not like some guy at the UN that says, no, you're a city, get out of here. I mean, are there, are there, do you know what I mean? <laughs> there might be plenty of guys yeah. <laughs> that are, that, that, and women that say that. You know, again, this is all about the success in anything we do. So the first opportunity that I've the the real opportunity I had under the de Blasio administration and 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 working closely with the mayor was that he wanted me to be entrepreneurial and creative, right? We have to do the operational to host the largest diplomatic corps, but how do you bring value and what do you do for our New Yorkers? And he said, go get creative and do that. And so we've done that with a couple of different platforms, but it's been so um incredibly important that the entrepreneurship is there, but the relationship building, right? Because this is not just about the way that we work with other city agencies, because we're not implementing policy. We're not creating or implementing policy. What my office does is take the good work that all of my fellow colleagues do, whether it's in transportation or sanitation or in sustainability, and translate that into the global conversation and create an opportunity for exchanging best practices with other cities and states, or a cross-border sort of connection that is grounded very much in the work that we do for New Yorkers every day. So it's less about coming up with some policy and and fighting for that policy politically. It's more about treating New York City as the sort of laboratory of new practices and then showing your results so other ones, other people can model. That's it. exactly right. I mean, the, the the political wrangling definitely happens. It's just the you know the commissioner for uh, uh, Polyton, where the commissioner for uh, transportation is already doing that work. Once she is successful, um, we are able to then take those policies and translate it into the global conversation. And where where are the are the sticking points when you're trying to do that? I mean, where where are the main obstacles? I mean, it's not like the the federal government says, "Hey, stop." talking this way. I mean, they can't. No, you know, and you know, <laughs> or, or they could. Um, they, they, they don't. And what's been very interesting, you asked the question about is anybody at the UN saying no cities, you can't. They recognize the importance. I mean, we are in such a sweet moment right now, right? Cities are showing up. We have the opportunity to do so and we're taking advantage of it. And it's, you know, and there, and there are two areas that I also want to straddle is that we're activated here in the U.S. because we have a federal government abdicating its res- responsibility. But we also want to engage with other cities around the world where their states, their nation states, are you know very actively in- involved. We haven't talked about the Sustainable Development Goals, but that is at the heart of 
the way that we connect and talk beyond borders because it allows us a common um, language and framework. So the SDGs were agreed to by the global community back in 2015. And that was the same year that Mayor de Blasio launched his 20-year development agenda called One NYC. Was post Sandy, but we needed, and because if you guys are aware of him, we have a very such strong equity lens when we think about resiliency and sustainability. And because of that equity lens, so that's taking into account our strong uh, policies around gender equity, around addressing homelessness, and taking on issues like mental health. This allowed us to have, we mapped it towards the SDGs, and we had synergies on all 17. So we created a program called Global Vision Urban Action. And we created this platform because of this unique ability to be the host to the UN. Hey, can we partner with you to showcase some of the work that New York City is doing, exchange best practices, hear how other cities and states are doing this, but create that dialogue. And that uh, essentially has been around for about three years, and we have developed it now into its next iteration. We do site visits. We're taking diplomats to the five boroughs so that they can actually connect and see what we're doing around water treatment and a lot of different um, policies that we have related to the sustainable development goals. And what's really exciting is that, and this is super policy wonky, but the shit matters. Um, every summer during the high-level political forum, we have uh, foreign ministers from all over the world coming to New York City um, to do the, the hard work before the UN General Assembly and the heads of state and their bosses all show up around the SDGs. And during that period, um, nation states submit voluntary national reviews. It's a wonky bureaucratic thing, but it's a very important tool for nations to have to show where they, their accountability on the SDGs. And we knew the U.S. was never going to do that, and we have a great relationship with the Secretary General and his office. And we said, how about New York City does a voluntary local review? And we submitted the very first voluntary local review in the world, and this is a way for cities to showcase how we in our communities are impacting the sustainable development goals. And that has been extraordinary because we're almost seeing this as like a service we're creating um, because we have the resources here in New York City to do it, but you might not in Mumbai, um, you might not in Nairobi. How can we support you in activating your community and your local government on the SDGs? Again, irrespective of where your national government is, for the SDGs to be accomplished, communities and cities have got to show up. That is one piece of it. The other is very much about how are we activating a movement that is using shared language and the framework, and this is what we think is very important around the sustainable development goals and that language. I mean, on the one hand, when I picture it, I see, wow, this web of international cities, you know, pulsing and starting to communicate with each other and modeling different things and all that. And then I think about... Well, certainly in America, but I'm sure all over the world, people who don't live in cities look at those of us in cities as the weird, progressive, cosmopolitan. I sort of mentioned it in the monologue. The sort of, you know, the oh, the problem of like the international Jew or something in these corrupt, decadent cities pushing things forward, letting in. Well, of course they let immigrants into cities because they're all immigrants anyway, and not of you know of where is there. Does, does the practice, this sort of city-based practice, does it extend into whatever we would call country? You know, the UN is very focused on that, and there's a number of partners, both private sector and in government, that work on that. But, you know, what hearing you say that, that's still true in cities, right? <laughs> so one of the, one of the you know, it's not just us here in Manhattan or me up at the UN and, like, the crew I hang out with. 
there is real work that we have had to do here at um, here in New York City. And part of that is, you know, when I was first appointed, everybody's like, oh, you took the job where you deal with the people with the parking problems. And, you know, you just people think of the U.N. largely around um, parking or the traffic around the U.N. General General Assembly. And some of the work that I had to do was very unique to the U.N. I am to being in to being in New York City. And then I, I commissioned a, um, a the first economic impact analysis of what it means to host the U.N in over 30 years. The reality is, is they employ 16,000 um, employees, uh, New Yorkers. Um, it's over $3 billion. I mean, they bring such a huge amount of economic value. That's great. So That's a, very unique. It's profitable. It's profitable. Now, the other piece of it, though, is how do you get to the everyday New Yorker? How do you communicate that? And so we created a program called Junior Ambassadors focused on 13 or 14-year-olds. That's like the known age where you know you could lose them, but you could also engage them if you can. And we have a competition, educators in any uh, charter schools, public schools, after-school programs. How can you integrate um, an SDG, one or two of them, into your curriculum? The winning classrooms, very unique to, to New York City, you get a tour of the UN, you get a briefing by an expert. We have the diplomats go out there um, to the schools. But the most important thing about it is that they're learning about these global issues, whether it's trafficking or something related to climate. And then their commitment and what they have to do is something in their community. So in the Bronx, we have dozens of young junior ambassadors who are focused on SDG 14. And it's like life under on life underwater. And you're like, what? And you know what they're all focused on? Cleaning up the South Bronx River. That is how you get the long-term impact and the community engagement. And I have to say, when we first were, I was, we were uh, launching this program, we were sort of doing like a marketing, you know, campaign. And I was going to, to middle schools and, and speaking to um, seventh and eighth graders, which was awesome. And I went to a, um, a school in Staten Island. And these kids literally acted like I was like Barack Obama. It was so cool. <laughs> I was like, they're like, can I touch you? And I was like, sure. Um, and I was talking to their principal after, and 70% of his students, mind you, these are 13, 14, 15 year olds, had never left the island of Staten Island. That's crazy. And that they, they have this incredible educational institution here in New York City that is an hour away. And they have they might as well have been in Mars. I mean, I, I joke about that I could have been Barack Obama, but they've never had someone of of my prominence at their school. And then guess what? I look like them. One of the things I do is how many of you have parents that were born in another country? 100%. How many of you were born in another country? about 90%, right? And for them to see that as their global ambassador to, so it has so much to do with representation, but the actual work to, to engage the community. And I think that the young people are the way to do it. For the first time now, you have, you have these kids, these SDG 14 advocates who are like sitting at their dining room table talking about the UN, life underwater, the South Bronx River, and you have parents for the first time thinking, oh, this matters to me. This is, you know, this is something that I can connect with. So Well, it's also, I mean, and, and not just to credit the de Blasio administration, but it's such a contrast to what, it, from my experience, went before between the Giuliani and the Bloomberg administrations, where it felt like New York was so much Manhattan Yes. that now, yes, exactly, I mean, I teach yeah. at Queens College in yes. Flushing, and yeah. now I feel like I'm part of New York again, yeah. and we're, it, it's the international New York, you know? And that, but that actually speaks to, you know, a perfect example is my, um, my colleague who's a commissioner for Parks 
Mitchell Silver. You know, they have moved hundreds of millions of dollars into community parks throughout the five boroughs, right? The Manhattan Park's always good investment. That's always very important. But what does it mean when we're actively seeking and moving money into the South Bronx, East New York, parts of Staten Island? And you could, you've, you see literally the impact on that neighborhood and those kids and that school and those families. Yeah. In contrast to, to nationalism and isolationism, the, the work you're doing seems to make this kind of big abstract idea of global community very real and concrete. I mean, when I came up as a little activist, I mean, global was bad. Right, global was let's go to Seattle and protest the WTO. Global was neoliberalism. Global was was these corporate forces that were going to suck us out, and even cities weren't weren't any better. It was just the places you couldn't afford to live. A bit, but but it feels like that that your your office is sort of demonstrating how things that seem really strange or abstract to us, like UN sustainability goals. It's just this list of things. Sure, we want marine life to live and children to be educated. It starts to make it. On a scale, it's like an on-the-ground practice of these people doing something. It's not just something on TV, you know. And I don't know how many people would disagree with the the original definition or uh, conception of global order. I think this is an opportunity to redefine what right. that means. Um, I have found uh, being appointed in this position an extraordinary opportunity to take taxpayer dollars and bring value and find a way to impact their everyday, but also support and host and engage, you know, the richest international community in the world. It's here, right? So that's that's one piece of it. But the other is when you take this moment of what city leadership, city diplomacy can look like, it's needed. If we don't do it, you know, my I had a great example this summer. I was at uh, Chatham House, um, name dropping a little bit. I don't actually know it's a good name drop in, but I was on the closing plenary with Jeff Flake and it was can America regain its balance? And what was so interesting being at the conference, you're in Chatham House, it's their London global conference. And I was one of the only, if not the only representative of a local authority. And it was a few weeks before the NATO meeting. And you can just tell for the first time, our European colleagues, you know, some of our other global colleagues were, oh, Trump isn't just going to like fall in line. You know, they just thought he was doing a lot of smack talking, you know, they did not know that this was actually going to be his sort of foundation for action and policy on every existing um, sort of treaty and convening. And you know what I found was so extraordinary to me was that I was representing almost two years of action because we knew right away, we knew February of 2016 how he was terrorizing our communities. So we had had almost two years to activate. You know, people talk about the resistance, but at the end of the day, we wanted to take care of our New Yorkers. And our New Yorkers, irrespective, and this was work that we were doing even before Trump. So when the mayor came in in 2014, our policy priority was IDNYC. Does anybody know what IDNYC is? Awesome. We need more of you guys. Oh, okay, good. We're getting it. It is the New York City ID card, essentially. It gets you access to about 40 or 50 cultural institutions for free. And part of it is, is that we want to make sure that IDNYC, all New Yorkers have it. But the purpose of it is to ensure that New Yorkers, irrespective of their documentation status, have access to an ID so that they can navigate the city in a dignified fashion. All of you parents know you can't pick up your kids from school if you don't have an identification card, 
right? And so you can't access city services, health and human services, all of that. So that was something we were doing back in 2014. I can't even begin to tell you how important that became, the relationships that we had built because of the way that we were getting. We have over, I think, a million, almost two million IDNYC cards out there. Um, but how important it was for that work, that foundational work we had already done. He came in in February 2016. We saw how Trump and the administration were going to go after our our community, and we knew how to show up. And being a Chatham House, it was just fascinating because they were they almost took two years to figure out the kind of activation they were going to need, whereas we knew it and we had been doing it for two years. I mean, the other thing that's important is is for us as New Yorkers to feel like the city has our back. You know, so you know, so teaching at Queens, we find out immigration policy changes, we've got dreamers, we've got undocumented people, and it's like, and we want to create a sanctuary. You know, so CUNY's a sanctuary, or Queens College is a sanctuary, and it's like, are we gonna get in trouble? What? And if the city, if we know that the city is kind of on our side, then it's like, okay, now, you know, I'm not scared they're gonna, you know, Absolutely. Pull me out of my house or something. And this is, I mean, this is where our and my office's relationship with the concert corps was very important. You know, a lot of the questions related to IDNYC, what, what was the city doing with that information? Are they going to give it to the federal government? No. Right. Um, if uh, if um, ICE shows up at a Department of Education school, are you going to pull out the undocumented student? No. You know, is NYPD going to turn anybody over to ICE? No. But, it, you know, so much about being under attack um, around the nationalism and the the way that you talked about the administration is that you have to ensure those relationships exist, that that line of communication is there and they know where to get information. Information is the most extreme power under extreme attack. And that is what New York City has ensured that we will do for our communities. Right. I mean, so it gets to the point where if someone feels they're being uh, chased by ICE, can they go to the New York City cops for help? You know, yeah. it's like... Yeah. It, and that's and that's where you know where the city being vocal about where it stands on these issues. Absolutely. That's where that finally Absolutely. matters. Absolutely. And there's always you know we're government and you know you know I'm I'm always very aware that it depends on the consulate and their right. relationship with their with their community and the government um, the the political context of what's happening in that particular country. And so there's just work we have to do. But remember, this is a line of you know marks up after me, and we're talking about totally two different things. But this is. This is how we're all partnering, right? I'm representing local government, but it's how are we partnering with the private sector, with civil society, with the public sector. It's really important that we're all talking to each other, and at the end of the day, we have our neighbors back. And we all can do it in different ways. And the, the most common question, I'm, and maybe it's the one that you're getting a lot, I get hundreds of emails from people every day saying, how do I plug in? What can I do? I love what I'm hearing. I mean, what if, if certainly for a New Yorker or for someone at Civic Hall, because there's a lot of people who come here and looking for the next project, what can New Yorkers do to participate in this this activity in helping New York reach sustainability goals or or yeah. I mean, well, first of all become aware of them right I mean there there are so many ways to engage I think the most important and I know I'm talking to the to the converted but it's to vote but get 20 sure. of your friends to go vote right that has actually been um, the signif significant focus of this administration too is to ensure that there is just voter accessibility and trying to ensure that all New Yorkers um, have an opportunity to vote with my with my office and you know we all have different ways of engaging on issues i do really believe that the sustainable development goals become a common are just the most important common framework for us to talk about issues whether it's gender equity 
or quality education or whatever the topic that drives us. And being able to do that and share best practices um, has been really valuable and thinking creatively about how we can partner together. So changing people's behavior and climate, as you guys know, is one of the most important. And our um, Office for Sustainability partnered with Swell. Um, they make those really fabulous looking water um, bottles. They It was a multi-million oh, multi, um, dollar donation that they gave all New York City high school students. But that is for the first time you're thinking about how you're changing people's behavior. But how can we think creatively, whether you work in the spare area of AI or you're a teacher in the Bronx, how can we have that kind of impact on our everyday, um, both our life, but the people that we impact around it? I mean, I feel like there's also, partly it's because of the internet and what we've the way we experience what is now known as scale. I feel like a lot of people feel like if they're doing something locally, if it's not scaling, if it's not a website that everyone in the world is somehow using for the, then it's not real. You know, are, are you, are you seeing people now coming to understand that doing good local urban activism is global activism? I I say yes, because I see how it's being celebrated. I'm in a very unique position where I can see, again, these junior ambassadors, I can't even begin to tell you the pride in which they do their work, but they're not getting to travel. I mean, they're not going you know, to, to Paris or to Nairobi to do about, to talk about their work. They're just doing it here in their communities. They're holding assemblies at their school, trying to explain to them why trafficking of um, girls is important and why that, you know, that's happening in their neighborhoods. And if not, here are the signs for domestic violence. And if, you know, you're being harassed, it's so fascinating how these kids take these local, um, these global issues and localize it into their, into their context. But I see that it's being celebrated. I think it becomes a very personal thing about what kind of appreciation you should think you should get from an activity but at the end of the day you know this this is like being a decent person you know um the impact it hap it has um when you're kind to someone when you open a door when you help somebody with something but it's just taking that and doing that in your community um in in more strategic ways I mean, I know you did uh, work previous to this. You did work in women's rights. Yes. And are you getting to ex to, to express the women's, women's rights agenda through oh, city sure. work and how? Um, the mayor, I like to call him, he's my favorite F word, the feminist. Um, he has been very serious about our gender equity um, plan. We actually, um, New York City, for the first time in its history, over 52 or 53% of senior managers, senior leadership are women. Um, so it is literally, New York City is literally run by women. And that has been so reflective in the kinds of policies. Very personally, I have a two-year-old and right before I uh, got pregnant with my son, I had had a miscarriage. And I uh, remember calling HR during that period and she was lovely, but she was like, when are you due? I was like, on a Sunday. She's like, great. Remember, I'm the commissioner too. Work as many hours as you can the week before to roll it over. And I was like, what? There, at that point, there were no, there were no, um, there was no parental leave for New York City employees. And the mayor um, did that in 2016. We have uh, some of the most progressive parental leave uh, in the um, country again. This is not something that's federally mandated, so it has to happen at the local level. Uh, parental leave with uh, Pittsburgh and Austin, I believe, have some of the equally progressive leave. But this is the way it shows up, right? When you have women and a feminist mayor thinking about these issues, we have a, a 
uh, suite of policies called leveling the gender uh, paying field. And that's everything from parental leave to universal pre-K. So we've put over 70,000 four-year-olds to school um, in New York City. For the first time, we're trying to emulate that program with our three-year-olds. But you know who that really helps? Single moms saves them ten to $15,000 a year. Um, you can't ask previous salary now for city employment. You can't. That's been one of the um, significant ways that data has shown that women get held back and get paid less is based, their current salaries based on what their last salary was. So you can't ask about that. So there, and we have some of the strongest sexual harassment laws. Um, so by having a mayor that thinks about it has um, aligned his, um, his values around gender equity, and that's reflected in leadership, that has become a reality in implemented uh, policy for New York City that has incredible implications for all of us. And do you get to see some of those uh, modeled by other places? I mean, do, do other cities come and say, how do we... I'm going to be really honest. When it comes to issues related um, to uh, things like parental leave, the U.S. is so far behind. Um, you know, that, that is probably not a place we can share a lot of good best practices. Um, in fact, when I came back from my, my leave, which I was able to take about um, three months off, all of the like Nordic country ambassadors were like, Penny, why are you back? Didn't you just have a child? <laughs> Our policies are a year off. You know, right. there's these. We hear three like, months and we think, man, that's pretty this good. That's great. It's you know, they're like, weeks. oh, you got a year off, and then your husband gets six months off, and uh, you know. So, um, but there is a lot of exchanging best practices, um, especially around our sexual harassment um, mm. work. You know, the, globally, everybody's talking about the Me Too movement, and we have really uh, weighed in and showed what that means when local government um, is implementing the policies to ensure that um, women and men have safe um, workplaces I mean it, this is going to come off as a softball question and I don't I, and it's actually a hardball question a lot of young young women especially you know listening listening to the show they hear about what you're doing and like shoot I want to be her I guess what advice do you have to young women who want to plug in and and move into positions of power you know where they can actually make substantive change um that's that is actually not softball at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think this is for young people in general. I know that I uh, got here um, by working very hard um, and being open for new opportunities and being at the right place at the right time. Like things just sometimes have to work out for 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 certain movements to happen. But what something that I have seen successful among anybody, whether they're in the private sector or in government, is that y you have to you have to be true to what you care about. So I have done a lot of type of work, but I've always done it in an area where I could work around women's rights issues. And I've I've cultivated a lot of skills that have made me a very good ambassador. But prior to that, I made sure I worked for all kinds of organizations, but it's always followed the value of dedicating myself to promoting women's rights issues. And so I think being, you know, Finding work and a purpose that you enjoy is important, but you have to cultivate the skills and do the hard work and, and show up uh, when you can. You have to find allies and advisors. And I will say you, you asked specifically about young women. Um, men are very important in that. Um, I am where I am because I, had a, um, I have a mayor a male mayor who completely uh, supports me and, and allows us to do the work that we do. Prior to that, um, I had the CEO of the Clinton Global Initiative that was extraordinarily supportive. So we need the men uh, to show up as allies that also support the work that we do. 
And I mean, I'm trying with, even though in my life I get very pessimistic sometimes, I have a kid and I worry about the future that she's going to be raised in and about the climate and about yeah, so much. And it sounds like you're, you're hopeful. I am. I'm a glass half full person. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, and I will say, I personally have been, um, and now you, I talked about my background, but being an immigrant, having been undocumented, seeing how hard my parents worked to allow me to have the opportunity I have to have seen this president go after this community of people, um, it's been very hard. And part of the glass half full is how can you make impact where you're at? And I happen to have a job that, you know, gets me on stage here. But everybody has a way of supporting organizations, supporting people that allow you to know that you you are having impact um, and positively. So I am hopeful because I see what other people are doing and I see the opportunities that I have um, that I continue to cultivate to allow myself to feel hopeful. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Penny Abbey-Wardena. Thank you for being on Thank Team Human. Thank you so Human. much. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Our guest was New York City Commissioner for International Affairs, Penny Abbey-Wardena. You can hear the second half of this special Team Human Live with futurist Mark Pesci next week. Team Human is entirely listener-supported, and you can become a patron of the show at teamhuman.fm by clicking on Support. You can also go there for my schedule of upcoming appearances and Team Human book talks. Team Human is produced by Stephen Bartolome. Our engineer was Josh Chapdelin. Our associate producer is Luke Robert Mason. You can find our show and my writing at Medium. You've been listening to Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.